Good morning, church. How's everybody doing? Good? Awesome. <laughs> Matt's doing great. How about everybody else? Yeah, that's right. Awesome. Good to be here this morning. Our teaching text for this morning is Ephesians 5, verses 21 through 33. It says this, Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands as you do to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body, of which he is the Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word, and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any blemish or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. In this same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated their own body, but they feed and care for their body just as Christ does the church. For we are members of his body. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery, but I am talking about Christ and the church. However, each one of you also must love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. This is the, this is the word of God. Amen. Well, before I get started, before we jump in to our text for the day, uh, which is a light one, right? It's kind of an easy text. You kind of, you know, we're just going to go skim across the surface today. But no, before we get started, I just wanted to start out and say, I mean, Joe already did this, but how about them Rangers, right? I mean, it's pretty amazing, pretty incredible what they did. I mean, a 63 years, since the beginning of the franchise, 63 years, finally coming to this place where they have won the World Series. And after a crushing defeat in 2010, and then again in 2011, where they were, I think, just one strike away, two different times from winning the World Series. I mean, can you imagine how they must have felt? Uh, this, was no, this was November 1st. What a way to start November as well. And what's funny is that that same day, another drought ended. It was a 37-year drought of me caring even more than 1% about baseball, <laughs> of sports at all, and it really in any way. I, I follow soccer some, but genuinely, this week, there was something about what happened that kind of drew me in. And I was like, this is, this is, this is my home. These are my people. I've got to support them. And so I, I watched almost every game of the, of the series. I didn't watch any leading up to that because I didn't even know it was happening. But then I watched all these games and I was drawn in. I was like learning about baseball. I was like reading terms and all this stuff. And I, I, I found myself reading about the history of the team this week, not to prepare for this sermon, like on my own time. And I was like, what's happening to me? I was, like, I was a little scared of what was happening. I was like, I need to repent and just give this to God. I don't have time for this. But it was just this, it was so funny how like I was drawn in and how, I mean, if you've been a Rangers fan, who, who's been a Rangers fan their whole life? Raise your hand. There we go. So for you, this was that much more, you were that much more invested in the outcome of this World Series. Like you were just, man, so totally locked in. And I, I don't know about you, but I felt kind of in awe of what they did. It was like, yeah, that first picture, I mean, look at it. 
What's his name again? Spores? Something like that? Spores? I'm learning their names. I'm doing it. Uh, but Spores, I mean, the way he, like, as soon as the, he, he get that last strike, it was like he slammed his glove down and everyone was jumping. I was like in the house. I was like, ah, it's like, I was like, jump was so exciting. And really, I cared zero, but for someone who cares, I mean, even more than I, who's been invested for years, how much more, man, is that going to be? I, I mean, there's been people flooding to buy the merch, which like before, did you own the merch two years ago with 102 losses? Games lost? I don't know. Probably not. Joe did. Joe is not a Fairweather fan. Let it be known. But truly though, how many Fairweather fans are there? But, it, but there's something about being willing to go through the ups and the, and the downs with the Rangers that like, makes this win more significant, right? So we're talking about marriage today, obviously. And when I was reflecting, and when I was re- reflecting on marriage um, and reading on the topic, it hit me, both from what I've observed just in my own life and also from the articles online, there's, there are numerous, I mean, literally, I think more than you can probably count, articles, blogs, people talking about marriage, ripping it for that it's an outdated institution, that it's worthless, things like that. Um, but then also saying, well, we really kind of need it. And look at the statistics. I mean, look at how much it adds to society. And even literally articles that felt bipolar. They were like, this is... I hate marriage and this and this happened and the the pain I have from it in my life and then the article would end with like but we really kind of still need it it's like a functional piece it's like I felt like I was watching Rangers fans you know it was like this where people decry what's happening and maybe some of the failures and pains that we experience in marriage but at the same time they can't they're kind of obsessed with it and they can't stop talking about it at the same time how many how many Blogs are written on the Rangers and what they're doing and who's playing and what's, I mean, it's just like crazy, the amount of, of content. And it's almost the same with marriage, like this great concern with it. And I mean, for instance, many in our day have even questioned the validity in the 21st century of marriage, if it's even a good idea. Uh, it's outdated, sexist, part of the patriarchy. Many have already jettisoned the idea of marriage as a basis for the healthy family or have, or have even decided to skip out totally or at least significantly delay marriage. In 2022, Pew Research Center found that 30% of U.S. adults are neither married, living with a partner, nor engaged in a committed relationship. Furthermore, half of all young adults are single. 34% of young adult women and a shocking 63% of young adult men. Which you're like, how does that make sense? It means the women are marrying older men. And for those in our culture who are still accepting of marriage and participating in it, they look skeptically upon the why behind marriage, upon the meaning, especially anything traditional. And I've attempted rather successfully at times to redefine or to alter what in the average person's mind they think marriage and the purpose of marriage is meant to be. New York Times columnist Tara Parker Pope wrote in an article entitled, The Happy Marriage is the Me Marriage, which is just a scary title to me. In it, she says, the notion that the best marriages are those that bring self-satisfaction to the individual may seem counterintuitive. After all, isn't marriage supposed to be about putting the relationship first? Not anymore. For centuries, marriage was viewed as an economic and social institution and the emotional and intellectual needs of the spouses were secondary to the survival of the marriage itself. 
But in modern relationships, people are looking for a partnership and they want partners who make their lives more interesting, who help each of them attain valued goals. On this idea, Tim Keller in his book, The Meaning of Marriage says this, marriage used to be a public institution for the common good. And now it's a private arrangement for the satisfaction of the individuals. Marriage used to be about us, but now it's about me. So for our culture, the primary assumption that we see is that the end goal or purpose of marriage is our own happiness, our own personal, individual self-fulfillment, our own satisfaction. But is that any surprise, though? Really, I think when I look at it, our culture, I think, especially today, the strong current of the river of our culture kind of pulls us in the direction that our human heart already tends to drift towards my inward self, towards self-centeredness, towards selfishness, towards my own time or agenda being the most important, towards my own desire needs being priority, towards narcissism really, especially over time when not checked or redirected in some way. So that's our culture, but even personally for myself, I mean, the topic of marriage, like a Rangers fan, contains some of the most euphoric joys and, and, and wonders of my life, and yet at the same time, some of the deepest betrayals, pains, fears that I've ever experienced in my life. I mean, in the context of marriage, I've had with Meredith uh, four children. Well, I haven't had those children. She's had them. Let's be fair here and honest. Uh, Meredith, in the context of, the, of our marriage, we, we have four children, and, some, and we just, we love our kids. And they're amazing and they're incredible, but also in the context of marriage or in the topic of marriage, my father left with my two, my, left my two brothers and I and my mother for another woman and his career before I was one year old, and that shaped my life. In the context of marriage, I've had the thrill of pursuing a Meredith and winning her heart. It was one of the best seasons of my life. I was so thankful for it. And yet also in the context of marriage, uh, in a previous engagement prior to Meredith, I, th- that girl was unfaithful to me and with another man. And that man, my, my world was turned upside down by that at the time. In the context of marriage, I've known the depth of commitment and covenant that I've experienced with Meredith. Someone, man, who can know me so well, know all my best qualities, all my worst qualities and flaws and still love me. It's a tangible experience of God's love to me. Yet in the context of marriage, I was raised in a household and extended family rocked by divorce. My dad left, my, uh, three of my aunts, their husbands left. It was just over and over and all, and all with other women, just, just a, a, a betrayal of trust. And so I grew up with this blood unit that kind of felt like anyone who's not blood can't be trusted. And so I find in, that's just me and my experience. I mean, look at this room full of people with experiences coming out of marriage. I distinctly remember, I mean, maybe your story is similar to mine, or perhaps you've had a great example set by your parents in marriage, or perhaps your experience is even more of a tangled web of pain than mine is. We all come from such varying places. I distinctly remember many moments in my early 20s, 20s pondering how my mom was married to my father for 11 years before he was unfaithful to her and left. I remember wrestling with the lie of like, how can you really ever trust someone or know them. I mean, in the face of my dad, not only doing that to her, but then also dropping the responsibility of being a present father to his three boys. I realized, at least for me, the thing about marriage that terrified me, even more so in the moments after like my broken engagement, because it, was, it felt real then, 
was like, how can I ever entrust myself to someone else again? Like it happened to me. It happened to my mom after 11 years. It happened to me after three years. Like how can I be sure I won't be betrayed or wounded? This can cause such fear and anxiety that I think for many single people in the room, it makes finding the right person the chief goal. And such fear and anxiety then drives you to rule out every single person on the planet for some reason or another, because everyone has deep flaws. So Eric Klinenberg, a sociology professor at New York University, not a believer, says this, it's actually probably easier to meet people now than ever before. If you think about all the incredible technologies we have to connect, uh, we, uh, we have to connect. But one big issue is people today are really looking for their soulmate and they're not going to compromise. I do think there's a little bit of that paradox of choice problem. You have so many different options that it's easy to find the flaws with each one and difficult to just pick some person with all their flaws since we all do have them and just stay with it. And for my generation, and this current generation, that's a unique challenge considering how profoundly we've been impacted by divorce. I literally had no friends growing up uh, who had uh, intact parent, uh, parent marriages. Not, not a single guy friend that I knew, except for a few at church, but that was later on in my life. So if you're married, this can drive distrust and anxiety, especially when conflict arises, right? Are they gonna leave? Will they stick around? Are they gonna wound me? And those feelings, when you're in a conflict, man, it often intensifies the conflict and makes it worse because it's so difficult to see clearly when those feelings are present and conflict is already hard enough as it is. Or if you're divorced, a nightmare come true if you wanted to be married. I mean, my mom was divorced. I know the pain that she's gone through. How do you move on or move forward with another relationship? Is it possible? I mean, the rates on divorce for second and third marriages are even worse than first. So people celebrate divorce these days, but I always feel heartbroken when I see that because it's a mask for the pain. Even if you're justified for biblical reasons for that divorce, it doesn't alleviate the pain of the separation. So what keeps a man and a woman together? Like, if this is the, this is the situation we have, what keeps them together? We just read in Paul in Ephesians that we're to submit to one another. Our world doesn't like that language. On top of the statistics of marriage, they say, man, it's outdated because submit to one another. What is submit? Like, this is the 21st century. We're, women are liberated. Men are liberated. We're all moving forward. Like, why are we submitting to one another? Like, we're all independent, individual people. Why, why the need for this submission? How do we do that with an imperfect person and not get hurt? Paul quotes Genesis. He says, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. That's the vision that Paul lays out, but what do we need in order to experience marriage in such a way where it's not a source of pain, heartache, and wounding? Uh, a few years ago, I was renovating the bathroom on one of our, uh, on one of our houses. One of the bathrooms in our house. <laughs> one of our multiple houses. <sighs> the one up in Maui, namely. <laughs> no, no, not. That's not what it was. One of our tiny bathrooms in our tiny house. 
uh, we were, I was renovating it and there was a cast iron pipe coming up out of the floor and I had to cut into it to remove this old fitting. Oh man, it was a nightmare. I borrow, a, I borrow Richard Kreider's uh, Sawzall and I'm, and I'm going to town with this thing with a new blade I bought, set on the package, you know, cuts, wood, metal, da, 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 all these things listed, even cast iron and a long list of things. So I was like, great, this is what I need. I begin cutting and I'm there probably 30 minutes, an hour later, there's like no teeth left on the blade. And I'm so frustrated. I'm sweaty. I've almost broken a finger a few times because if you've ever used a Sawzall, it can be a little dangerous. And I'm so mad and frustrated. I was literally just ready to throw in the towel and call a plumber, but I was like, I can't, I don't have the money for that. So I go to Home Depot and I'm desperation. I find the Home Depot tool department associate, whatever his name is. And I say, listen, here's what I'm doing. He goes, oh, you need a cast iron blade. I was like, yeah, I got one. It said on there, cast iron. And he goes, no, you need this one. And it's a Lennox brand, diamond grit. And it says on the package in big letters, cuts cast fast. And I was like, okay. And then he looks at me and I'll never forget. He says, that other blade, that's not meant to do what you're asking it to do. <laughs> and I was like, thank you. I realized that it's not meant to do what you're asking it to do. I was like, great. So this one is, I like clarified, this'll do me. Yes. So I get home and literally I'm like, start the Sawzall in about 30 seconds. It's through the rest of it. And I was like, oh man, the right tool for the right job. But it said on the packaging, it said on the other package, it said cast iron. Like <laughs> I was so mad. Like it said it would work. It's like false advertising. Man, that's, that's the case and the scenario with what our world tells us about marriage and its purpose. It's false advertising. Marriage isn't able to make you happy or sustained. I mean, the spouse one marries, the institution of marriage itself, nor even the perceived social or religious status of marriage were ever meant to act as a source of your happiness, fulfillment, or significance. One article in Time Magazine was criticizing the idea of marriage and was ranting along the lines of, you know, why would I ever place my self-worth, happiness, and heart in the hands of another human being? And I was like, exactly! <laughs> I was like, that's right! You're on the right track, but you're blaming the wrong thing. It's actually your, your heart that needs to be redirected, not marriage. So I want you to see this, though, not from what I'm saying. I want you to see this in the Word of God. So let's see what the Apostle Paul has to say to us here. Verse 21 of our scripture, starting there. I'm going to read the whole thing so we get the whole context in our heads. It says this. Now, I know there's issues here with submission and, and headship and all things like that. For the moment, I just want you to set those things aside uh, and just, just listen. Try to set all your assumptions, all the things that are negative or biased in the scripture, every teaching you, any teaching you've ever heard, and just set it aside just in order to read the text afresh. So submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands as you do to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife as, the, as Christ is the head of the church, his body, of which he is the Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. 
Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. In this same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated their own body, but they feed and care for their body just as Christ does the church for we are members of his body. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery, but I am talking about Christ and the church. However, each one of you must also love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. So as you realize and as you know, we've been in a series in the book of Ephesians. So Paul, is in this, he's, he's speaking to the church in Ephesus. So he's not speaking into a cultural vacuum. You never speak into a cultural vacuum. It always comes with a context. And so Paul, what's, what's the cultural context of this passage? The, the Greek thinker Aristotle has some works on governance or how society should be ordered. And they profoundly shaped the society that Paul found himself in. And in those works, Aristotle instructed, uh, instructed the male head of household how to rule, and I mean rule, his wife, children, and household servants. And Paul here never instructs the male householder to rule. Instead, he is to love his wife, serving her by offering his life for hers. So if you think your cultural context is unhealthy, I don't think the admonition not to rule your wife would even be relevant if I made it right now, right? So for Paul, the cultural context is vastly more unhealthy. Children and wives were literally viewed as property, which made the male head of household, which meant that he could do with them as he pleased, not to mention the sexual climate of Ephesus, where having a wife, mistresses, and visiting a temple prostitute was socially acceptable, promoted, and even encouraged as worship to the goddess Diana. So Paul's been leading the Ephesian church to this point, and this is the context they're in. And their context is radically difficult, and he needs, he's needing to instruct them as to what it looks like to live out being a follower of Jesus now in a city like Ephesus, what it looks like to love one another in the Christian household. So church, this is crucial, lean in with me, where it's gonna be a little thick for the next few moments, but there's something in the scripture here that I think is important. I've actually preached on this passage before, so this is a bit of a a review if you don't remember. But the word submit in verse 21 is a verb in a particular form in the Greek which makes it dependent on the command, be filled with the Spirit, which is given just prior to our passage that we actually looked at last week. So, um, if you go to the next slide. In Ephesians 5, 18 through 20, just before our passage, it says this, and do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. That's the command. And then the, the, uh, the other verbs coming after that refer or, or in following that command. It says, be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another with psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always for, uh, and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, and submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. So in the ESV, literally, To be filled with the Spirit means to submit. One of the ways we are filled with the Spirit is to submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. And he is not speaking just to husbands and wives. He is speaking to you, life group member. He is speaking to you, serve team member. He's speaking to you, son, daughter, 
husband, wife, pastor, friend, everyone in the church, it is submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Next slide. So, after this, what's, what's, what's beautiful about that is that it literally sets up being submitted to one another out of reverence for Christ as something which brings in the Spirit of God into our relationships. Now, listen to this. What's even more beautiful about this word right here is that it says this, uh, submit to one another. That same word in the NIV is actually part of the next paragraph. Well, why is that? So, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Verse 21 also provides the verb and context for the next section. So, verse 21 functions like a bridge between the previous verses and what's coming. So, literally, proof of this is that verse 22, wives, submit to your husbands, doesn't have the word submit in there. Wives are like, what? You know, it's like, doesn't have the word submit, but it borrows the verb from the previous verse. So, it literally reads... Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ, out of reverence for Christ, <laughs> out of reverence for Christ, and then literally verse twenty-two reads, "Wives to your own husbands, as to the Lord." It's borrowing the, the the verb submit from before, so literally submit again, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives to your husbands, as to the, as you do to the Lord, and then the same thing happens with each section about household relationships. So that banner verse not only describes women, it also describes husbands. It also describes children in the home. It also describes parents. It also describes servants in the home. So we're literally going through all these household relationships that the Ephesian church would have had to deal with. And Paul is saying as the banner over all of them, submit to one another. Be, he says, be filled with the spirit and submit to one another. Out of what? Reverence for Christ. Isn't that amazing? I want to lean in here of why this is powerful for us. And, and, and first, I want to even say this. So um, there is room. There is room for discussion about what this looks like. And as your family pastor, I want to provide help, healing, guidance, clarity. Personally, do my wife and I believe men and women are equal in value before God? Yes, we do. So does Jesus. Do my wife and I believe we are uniquely made and have unique roles to fulfill in a marriage relationship? Yes, we do. That's our viewpoint. But what does that mean in our context today? What about the ways in which this passage has been mishandled and abused? My wife and I believe in biblical headship in marriage, but, we, but, but it's been abused. And oh, my word, has it been abused. And I have a daughter. I don't want her in a relationship where someone sees her, that has that view of her. So, absolutely valid questions, but if your question of this passage is, okay, so at the end of the day, who's in charge? If that's your summary question of what you're asking this passage to provide, you've missed the point. Does this make sense? You're, you're, if, if you focus on who's in charge, you're missing the larger point of what Paul's saying. Like, the whole point of it is to say, submit yourselves to one another out of reverence for Christ. Like, it's, it's redefining. The culture in which Paul was coming, it had to have husbands addressed. And so what does Paul do? He gives women a pretty short snippet saying, respect these men, which you probably don't respect because of how they treat you. And then he goes to men and he gives a paragraph about dying 
for them, about laying down their life for them, about what it means to, to submit yourself not only to your wife, but to do it to love her as Christ has loved the church. Like, it's a powerful push against the culture. Do you see this? Do you see what I'm getting at? So that's, and that's why I'm pointing here. So many people walk away from this passage with hangups about who's in charge. But the thrust of the passage is teaching individuals the ways in which they themselves ought to submit themselves to those they're in relationship with around them. Namely, out of reverence and awe for Christ. This is not an organizational hierarchy chart for marriage. So when, and when we look at this, what's so significant about it is that it's just, it's in line with the teaching of Jesus. When they asked Jesus, hey, who's my neighbor? What did he say? This person is your neighbor. And that, he said, what kind of neighbor are you? He put the question back to them and Paul's doing the same thing. He says, who are you and how are you submitting to those in your life? How are you submitting and out of reverence of Christ? How are you being filled by the spirit of God to submit to one another out of reverence for Christ? So, and we're submitting to one another. This is great, Donnie, I understand, but what does that mean, out of reverence for Christ? The word reverence, is everybody with me? Okay, the word reverence means more literally in the fear of Christ. How does that make everybody feel? <laughs> Every kind of, the, that in fear of God, like beginning of wisdom is the fear of God, that always kind of, I remember being off-putting to me. What does it mean to fear God? So, uh, Jewish scholars, Hebrew scholars often think that that fear of, fear of Christ verbiage or, 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 or the beginning of wisdom is the fear of the Lord in the Old Testament, that it doesn't translate well to our society and our culture. And I would agree, people read that and they think fear, it doesn't, doesn't sit right. So they often choose reverence, but uh, a number of commentators believe that awe would actually be a better word because the definition of awe is a feeling of reverential respect, respect mixed with fear or wonder. Have you ever felt that? I remember I went to, um, uh, was with a friend of mine uh, down in Galveston, I think somewhere down south of Texas by the beach. And I don't even remember where it was. It was in college. I didn't drive. So I get there and he wanted to go shark fishing uh, at night on the pier. And I was like, great. Sounds like dangerous fun. It'd be fun. So I go and there's this huge storm that's like blowing in. And I'm like, are you sure this is safe? And he's like, if you, if you knew my friend, you'd know he was just, a, he's a nut, but he's so much fun to be around. He was like, yes, it's safe. I could barely hear him over the wind and the waves. I remember even at some points, the, the, the swells of the ocean on the pier rat were actually coming up through the boards on the, on the deck and like wetting my feet. And I was like, this is insane. I remember thinking like, this is so nuts. But at the same time, there were moments where he was like pulling a shark out of the water. It was like 2 a.m. And I was like, what am I doing right now? And he's like getting this shark. I'm helping him wrestle this shark to the ground, afraid to lose my life. And I remember there was moments where I was like, this is beautiful. And there was moments where I was like, I'm going to die. I'm going to lose a hand or an arm. But there was this something about it was like I was in awe of like this, the ocean and its power how big it is and mighty. And, and, and then this, what, this activity we were doing, how scary it felt. And me in the midst of that, and my, that I can drown so easily and, or get bitten and lose blood and bleed out in minutes. I was, I was like, it's like so many things. I was like, this doesn't feel safe, but it's amazing. 
It's like this feeling of awe. It's the same feeling where when you stand on the edge of a cliff, no one, I don't know anyone who knees doesn't, don't buckle a little bit. It makes you want to back away. There's something about awe that's important. And so the marriage relationship is to be marked by a husband and a wife being filled with the Holy Spirit of God. Next slide. Being filled with the Holy Spirit of God and submitting to one another out of their awe of Christ. Do you have awe for Christ? And what's amazing is that the husband and wife relationship are headed by verse 21, which again is for the church. So if you're single in here, this applies to you and your relationships with one another. And if you're divorced, this applies to you and your relationships with one another. And if you're married, it applies to you and your relationships with one another. Our our relationships are meant to be marked by being filled with the Holy Spirit of God and submitting to one another out of their awe for Christ. The marriage relationship is not meant to point you to another as your fulfillment. No human being can bear the weight of that. Remember, that's not... That's not meant to do what you're asking it to do, Home Depot associate. It's not meant to do what it's asking you, what you're asking it to do. That's a difficult quote to read. It's meant to point both of you toward awe of Christ more. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery, but I am talking about Christ and the church. Your marriage is a pointer to Christ in the church. If you desire marriage, its purpose is a pointer to Christ in the church. The only answer to it is Christ and the church. Any other fulfillment you desire to find in it will leave you wanting. Christ is meant to fulfill our everything. Here's a good example of this. About a number of years ago, I was just going through a, a really tough time in my life. So probably the most stress I'd ever felt, uh, both personally and work-related. There's just so many things going on. I didn't know what to do. And I remember I was at a point where it was beginning to leak out of me. I couldn't contain it anymore. And I remember one night I got home with the boys and, and, and with, with our kids. And, and man, I lost my temper and I just snapped. And I, I, I yelled at them, raised my voice things that I said I'd never wanted to do, that I would never do. And I, I, I remember afterwards, uh, I hadn't apologized yet, still was feeling the shame. And I, I go into the bedroom. I can't, I can't not help but cry during this because it's the love of God. I walk into the bedroom. I remember sitting on my bed and just like hands on my head, you know, sitting on the edge of the bed, just feeling like not a pastor, not a follower of Jesus. And Meredith came in and she sat next to me and just, hey, what just happened out there, I know you know that that's not who God's made you to be. But I know that he's called you to more. But know that I, I see you and I love you and I'm here for you. She just hugged me, and I just broke. I just wept. I couldn't. There's something about the, the love of being seen for the ugliness that I have in me 
and being loved anyways, being valued, being seen. To be in awe of Christ means you've experienced the gospel in Jesus. He's the best thing you know or have experienced. You and I are more sinful and flawed than we ever imagined we were. And yet at the same time, we're more loved and accepted in Jesus Christ than we ever imagined we could be. This is the only kind of love. It's the only kind of relationship. And why was that beautiful with Meredith? That was a relationship with my wife, but what did she do? She didn't say, oh, honey, I think you're great. I think you're the best. Don't worry about it. You can, you can be better tomorrow. She pointed me to Jesus. She said, this is not who God's called you to be, but I know you know that. And so I'm here for you. And I just broke because she, she took me and pointed me back to Christ. There's another quote by um, Timothy Keller and his wife, Kathy Keller. It says this from his book, The Meaning of Marriage. Love without truth is sentimentality. It supports and affirms us, but keeps us in denial about our flaws. Truth without love is harshness. It gives us information, but in a way we cannot really hear it. God's saving love in Christ, however, is marked by both radical truthfulness about who we are and yet also radical, unconditional commitment to us. The merciful commitment strengthens us to see the truth about ourselves and repent. The conviction and repent us moves us to cling to and rest in God's mercy and grace. So how do we want to, when I think about this, man, we want to be... Um, we want to be people who are marked by husbands and wives and friends and people in the church. We want to be people who are marked by being filled by the Holy Spirit of God, by submitting to one another out of their awe for Christ. Like, what do we, what do, we do? What's the next step? I know we could be, be filled by the Spirit by submitting to one another through our awe. So what do we need? How do we need to enter into awe? So go to the next slide. Be filled with the Spirit. Marriage is God's endeavor, not man's. So all the talk about if marriage is outdated or trendy has no bearing for us <laughs> in this room. That's the wisdom of man. Great, they can philosophize all they want. I believe the scriptures and I believe what Jesus has said. So do you invite the Spirit of God into your life to fill you and guide you in your marriage, in your friendships, in your relationships? Do you invite it in, especially when there's conflict? Especially when there's when, there's, uh, when it's tumultuous? Or do you tend in those times to kind of quiet the spirit of God out because you don't want to hear what he has to say because you know it's going to be what you don't want to do? The Holy Spirit of God wants to lead us into all truth, but if we're not listening, church, we can't, we can't hear it. And so one of the ways we do that is being filled with the Spirit in our marriages. If you've never prayed with your wife or your husband to be filled by the Spirit of God in your marriage, I encourage you to do it. I need to do it more. I feel convicted as I'm saying that. I haven't done it enough. So that's part one. And then submit to one another out of awe for Christ. Paul David Tripp has a book entitled Awe. It's a very good book. You should read it. It really helps. Uh, it helped me in many ways. It says this about awe. Awe stimulates the greatest joys and deepest sorrows in us all. Here's a simple way to do a personal awe check, he says. Where do you experience your biggest moments of happiness and your darkest moments of sadness? What angers you or crushes you with disappointment? 
What motivates you to continue or makes you feel like quitting? What do you tend to envy in the lives of others? Or where does jealousy make you bitter? What makes you think your life is worth living or causes you to feel like your life is a waste? When you say, if only I had blank, how do you fill in the blank? What are you willing to make sacrifices for and what in your life just doesn't seem worth the effort? Look at your highest joys and your deepest sorrows and you will find where you reach for awe, for reverence and a sense of wonder and respect that really only Christ is meant to hold that place in our life. Sorry, Rangers fans. (laughs) If your deepest joys and deepest sorrows are in a baseball game, I mean this seriously, that's not the height of what you are meant to do or live. Uh, we, were, we were in Colorado recently. There's people that just worship the mountains and being outdoors. But if your highest joy is climbing on rocks and your deepest sorrow is when you're stuck in an office and can't get to those rocks. I mean, it's like, what, is, what, are, we, what, is, what, is, what are we shooting for? The marriage relationship is meant to be marked by a husband and a wife being filled with the Holy Spirit of God by submitting to one another out of their awe for Christ. So that's a heart check. And I could just say this, there is nothing better for your current marriage, for your future marriage, for your life of celibacy, if that's what God's called you to, friendships or parenting, than for you to cultivate a deep and intimate relationship with God. This is where we encounter him and live in awe of who he is. At all costs, this is the most important thing we could ever endeavor to do. Because if, if anything else takes the place, we're just living for something smaller. And being in awe of Jesus Christ and what he's done, there's something about when I feel awe about being in his presence because he's loved me so much and yet he's so big and powerful and speaks and stars come into being and, I, and then yet he sees me and knows me. There's something about that that I just, I feel fear. <laughs> in a good way. I don't, I I don't want to be horrible to my wife because she's an eternal being loved by Jesus. How can I do that to his daughter? So it puts the fear of God in me in a good way, but it also makes me wonder, well, God, why do you love me like this? You're amazing. And when I feel that stuff, when I'm living in a place of awe, it's really difficult to go and to lord it over someone in my life and to do what's not best for them in whatever situation it may be. Agape love, self-sacrificial love for the what? Good of the other, we've learned a number of weeks ago. This is what we're called to, church. So what I'm expecting for the presence of God and the Holy Spirit today in this room. So where I'm gonna call the band up, sorry, I should've done this sooner. Band, if you can come up. I'm gonna let this go a little bit longer. Uh, I want everyone to stand. And what I'd really like us to do is as we close our service, if we can pull up that uh, respond, how do we respond? You know, awe, what, what, what are your highest joys and deepest sorrows? What, where do you experience the biggest moments of happiness and your darkest moments of sadness? I just want everyone just to take a moment and then do it to using those questions or others and maybe we can switch back and forth between those slides periodically. There is something about inviting the Holy Spirit into your heart and your mind and your life to speak. That's just like nothing else. Um, 
Joe and I are doing this discipleship group thing, and one of the things that 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 he's coached us on doing is is basically for for discipleship purposes in your life, just to say, Lord, would you include me in what you're doing today? Would you include me in what you're doing? And then finding, seeing things that happen along the way that God calls you into. But I want to take that even a step back and just say, Lord, would you, would you show me what you're doing in me today? I want, would, I want to invite you into my heart today and allow you to do something. Whatever that may be. It may be that you need to sit down and just pray. It may be that you need to come forward with our prayer and prophetic team and, and pray with someone and share what's on your heart. It may be you turn to the person next to you and share and pour your heart out. It may be that you sit quietly and just reflect on this, but however the Holy Spirit directs you to respond, I just want to encourage you to let him in. There's something about lowering our guard and saying, God, you're good and you're trustworthy. You're powerful and amazing. You know what's best for me. And yet you love me. You've seen my deepest, darkest sin, the thing I wouldn't reveal to anyone. And yet you still love me. And just inviting him into that space and seeing what he wants to do and to speak in you. So I'm going to pray as we begin to worship. Jesus, thank you so much for who you are, God. Thank you that you've called us to be filled with the Holy Spirit of God by submitting to one another out of our awe and reverence for you, Jesus. So I pray that awe and reverence would just rise up in our hearts right now for you, God, that we would see you maybe with fresh eyes for what you've done for us, how you've loved us, the way in which you have delivered us, how you've entered into our lives, how you became a man and took on flesh, all the different things you did to come near us. Lord Jesus, I pray that you would help us just to enter in, to experience those now as we worship. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.